And now hear our gospel reading from Luke chapter 24. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit now as we rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior, that we would be able to comprehend and embrace all that this means for us, for our life, for our world. Deliver us from all error today, we pray. Deliver us from all distraction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. People of God, if I were to write down the words, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on a big whiteboard behind me here, and I were to ask you to tell me what words or themes or phrases come to mind when I talk about the resurrection of Jesus, what, what would you say? What would you come up with? I imagine that we could come up with enough words, thoughts, phrases, themes to cover the entire board. You might say things like, oh, when I think of the resurrection, I think of life, especially eternal life. I think of glory and renewal and revival and rebirth, victory over death. Uh, the defeat of the serpent, defeat of the grave. I think of hope and redemption and salvation and rejoicing and inexpressible joy. Those are all things that come to mind. You might add some others to that. And not to be entirely theological, some of you would rightly think of the celebration of Easter, that when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you think of everything that comes with the celebration of, of this day. You'll think of Easter hymns and Easter clothes and Easter baskets and chocolate rabbits and Reese's peanut butter eggs. Uh, you'll think of those as well, which by the way, are the perfect combination of chocolate and peanut butter. The perfect ratio is in the peanut butter egg and they'll all be on clearance tomorrow. So you can stock up and you can still be eating chocolate eggs in June if you play your cards right. It's not, it's not carnal to think that way. It's not, <clears throat> it's not, it's not sinful to think of those things as well. We, we have all these great traditions of feasting and fun associated with Easter. There is absolutely nothing shameful about that. And it's wonderful if your thoughts about the resurrection of Jesus are joined to thoughts of happy times and good food and good wine and marshmallow peeps, if, if that's all wrapped up together, dressing your baby in you know, cute Easter clothes, all of that. God is delighted when his people taste and see that he is good. Uh, when, when we actually enjoy his blessings and benefits and give him thanks for all these good things, God is glorified. God is delighted by all of this. 
But one word I bet nobody would come up with if we were to list all of the things that have to do with the resurrection, one word that nobody would come up with, even if we spent a lot of time, nobody would say confusion. That's what I think of when I think of the resurrection. Or how about fear? I think of fear, not just overcoming fear, but fear itself. Or, or would you put the word grief on your list on uh, resurrection themes? Maybe, maybe some of you would. But when it comes to the gospel accounts of the resurrection, confusion, fear, and grief are at the top of the list. Those are the words that are used to describe people's initial responses to the empty tomb. We think back and we think, oh, they must have just celebrated and been so happy. No, when people came to the empty tomb and were confronted with the realization that Jesus was not there, there was fear and confusion and, and grief. Uh, we see it in the women at the tomb. We see it in the disciples who come running up later when they go back and tell the others. The whole scene is shrouded in anxiety. Mark's gospel, in, in, his, in, in his gospel, in his account of the resurrection, is shot through with fear and worry. Let me just read a little piece of it. When, when they find the, the tomb is empty, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Fear was their response. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The, the, the whole thing is shrouded in this very confusing scene. There's, there's not a lot of uh, uh, trust or faith or confidence in what anybody is saying or what anybody is doing. In Luke's gospel that I read just a few minutes ago, we just saw the women and we just saw the apostles wrapped up in anxiety. Now, now we see them, who's not there at first? Well, of course, the Lord Jesus is not there. We see him later, but at first, Jesus is conspicuously absent from the account. All four gospels tell us that Jesus came out of the grave, but none of the gospels describe it happening because none of the gospel writers were there. None of the women were there. Nobody saw it happen. Later on, they see the risen Lord and they know what happened after the fact later. But, but by the time the women get there, the grave is opened, the stone is rolled away and Jesus is absent. And Luke is making a point here. Jesus is gone. Now, his word is there. His angels are there. His friends are there. His disciples are there in the middle of this confusing situation. And they're being put in this situation to exercise their faith without the bodily presence of Jesus. They're exhorted to remember his words in his absence. That's what the angel does. We'll just look, we'll look at this in just a minute, but the angels are saying, remember what he said, remember what he said. They stand there with an the open tomb. His bodily, he's bodily not there, but his words are. This is all very intentional and deliberate. You're gonna remind them what Jesus said. Are they gonna believe though what Jesus said? Are they gonna believe when Jesus said that he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Are they going to trust his word? Are they going to believe what Jesus says, even when circumstances are confusing, even when they can't understand what their eyes are telling them, when, they, when what they see and what they know are two different things? 
There's another interesting angle to the way that the gospel writers speak about the friends of Jesus and their disbelief and their fear when it comes to the reality of the resurrection. If this were all made up, if this were all just this big tall tale, if this were a fabrication and Luke was just making this out of, out of nothing, or, or maybe it was just some allegory that he were writing, he might've written this in such a way that all of the disciples and all of the women would just have no questions. They would see this and they would say, oh yes, that's very interesting. He told us this and now we believe and now we trust. They would have no doubts. They would have no fears. They would all just instantly bow down and worship and say, oh yeah, that's exactly what we expected and now it's happened and now that's great. In, in fact, if, if the gospel writers were making this up, women would not have been the first witnesses to the tomb because in the Jewish and in the Greek world, women's thoughts and opinions just weren't respected. Women were not seen as credible witnesses in court. Luke would have, would have said, the men got there first. They, they maybe fabricate some testimony from some Roman soldiers or some outside witnesses, somebody else. And maybe if this were a fabrication, um, in, in all of this, that, that he would present the apostles as these heroes of the faith, that these models of faith, boldly trusting, boldly believing, boldly leading the church into the future. But none of this in the, is in the text. There's no confidence here. There's no, there's no boldness. There's no assurance at the start. None of this is in the text because none of it was true. The human weakness and doubt and perplexity and confusion are all over the text. So when you say, oh yeah, people believed in the resurrection back then because they were so dumb and gullible. Where's, where's the gullibility? They all say that can't happen. That's not real. They're confused. Nobody comes away looking particularly wise or bold or courageous. Well, let's walk through these few verses in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday, very early in the morning when some women come to the tomb of Jesus to, to finish the work of preparing the body of Jesus for burial. Some tombs in the ancient world were hewn out of the side of a hill or hewn out of the side of a mountain. They were rock. They were like a cave. If you could find a good cave, that made a, that made a, good, a, a good burial place, but you could also carve a place out of, out of the side of a mountain. And inside, they had a long shelf or a table or a platform where you could lay the deceased. And the Jews had certain customs of burial that showed honor to the body of their loved ones, they would anoint the body with special spices, they would wrap it up, they would lay them to rest on that shelf inside the tomb, and then they would close, they would close the door. They'd roll a stone or something over the, over the opening of the grave. And when the next person in the family passed away, they would reopen the tomb, they would collect all the bones of the previous body and store them in a special clay jar put it in the corner, and then spread the newly deceased loved one out on the shelf after they prepared that body. Uh, and so th there's this idiom in the Old Testament when, um, when they say, I'm going to be gathered to my fathers. Remember, Jacob said that. Jacob said, I'm going to be gathered to my, to my fathers. Remember, they go to elaborate lengths to prepare the body of Jacob for burial way back in Egypt, they preserve his body. And then they take him to Canaan and bury him in the cave of Machpelah with, with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah. This was the custom. It was one cave. It was a family burial cave for the whole family. So this was the custom ordinarily. But in cases of crucifixion, the Romans 
would typically order that the body would remain on the cross uh, until the birds took, took care of it. They would leave them there as an example, as, as a witness to what happens when you cross Rome. That's what happens to criminals and, and thieves and rebels and revolutionaries. They don't deserve a burial. We'll just leave them on the cross. So you remember that Joseph of Arimathea has to go to Pilate and beg. He has to bargain for the body of Jesus to be taken down and he asks for him to be buried in the new grave that Joseph of Arimathea has recently prepared for his own family's use. Now, by the time all of this takes place, by the time we, we get the body of Jesus off the cross, and have, by the time we've got a place for his body to lay, uh, it's getting dark. The Sabbath is about to begin, and you can't do this anointing work on the Sabbath, so they have to hurry, and they just have enough time to get the body of Jesus off the cross and into the grave so that they could come back on Sunday and, and anoint the body and wrap it up after the Sabbath is over. You do what you can, you, you get, get him in the grave, and then, and then come back on Sunday morning to finish the work. Now, early on Sunday morning, this is the first opportunity these women have had since the crucifixion to come and honor the body of Jesus, to come prepare his body for, for burial. They come with their spices. They come with all of, their, all of their accoutrements. But when they get there, they find out they don't need them. They find out that all of this is in vain. They don't need any of this. They get to the tomb and a stone is rolled away. Now, traditionally, they would close up the mouth of the cave with a massive rock to keep away grave robbers or wild animals. It could take a couple of men to roll the rock into place to cover up the mouth of the cave. But these women get here and this enormous rock is not where it belongs. You've seen things uh, in your life that take a while to process. You see things that uh, are odd or strange or unbelievable, and it takes time for your brain to figure out what's going on, to, to, to understand. You don't have categories for the new information that you're taking in. You're stunned, so you go into sensory overload, and these, these women, when they get there, are surely trying to put all of this together. What's happening here, they think? Did, did somebody mess with the grave? Is, is this a stunt? Can't they, can't they leave him alone, even in death? Can't they just leave him be? They go into the cave to see if the body of Jesus is still there. And they see that the grave is empty. Luke says now they're greatly perplexed. The, the word that he uses there gives a sense that they are completely at a loss. They have no explanation. There's no way of putting all this together. And suddenly, in the middle of their confusion, appear two men in shining garments, angels. Now the women are really afraid. They bow their faces to the earth, and the, angel, the angels offer them a gentle rebuke. They say, you're looking for Jesus? Uh, why are you looking for him among the tombs? Why are you looking for him in a graveyard? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Don't you remember he said that this would happen? They repeat back to the women, the words of Jesus, that he will be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He will be crucified. And the third day he will rise again. This is a good place to stop and talk about the question that gets raised from time to time. If Jesus was crucified on Friday, you know, we always celebrate Good Friday, and if he rose on Easter, if he rose on resurrection morning on a Sunday, how does that equal three days? How do we, how do we get three days out of this or three, three nights? 
Um, so, so some folks are inclined to say, well, maybe he was, maybe he was crucified on Thursday, really, and that gets you, that gets you three days until, until Sunday. But no, remember, he was crucified on Friday because the next day was the Sabbath. They're getting ready for the Sabbath the next day. They got to get the body off the cross in, and, and get it in the grave so that the body is not hanging open uh, on the Sabbath um, and that they don't have to do this work on the Sabbath. And then uh, the women, so, so it had to be Friday, and then the women come on the first day of the week. That's what Luke tells us. On the first day of the week, the women come, and the tomb is empty. So how does, how does this work? How do, we, how do we figure this out? Well, in Matthew, when Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, remember what Jesus said. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples on Thursday. He's arrested that night and he's in the custody of the priest's guard and he's mocked and abused all night. That's his first night in the heart of the earth. Uh, the grave is not the heart of the earth. Jerusalem is the heart of the earth. Jerusalem is the center stage, the focus of all of God's mighty acts to save the world. Jesus enters the heart of the earth on Thursday. He spends all night under, uh, uh, under watching and the uh, persecution of the guards uh, uh, that night, Thursday night. He's tried and crucified on Friday. His body rests in the grave on the Sabbath, and then he comes out of the grave on Sunday morning, the morning of the resurrection. He's three nights in the heart of the earth. He's three nights in Jerusalem. And that's, that, that fits with the angel's timeline as well. Uh, he said he's delivered in the hands of sinful men. That was Thursday. He's crucified. That's Friday. And then on the third morning after that, he's delivered uh, uh, out of the grave. He rises again on Sunday. The third morning after he's delivered into the hands of sinful men, he rises again. Uh, the point here, the, the larger point is that the angels have to remind these women who are some of the people closest to Jesus, they, the angels remind them what Jesus said and how Jesus talked about how this was going to happen. Uh, and yet they were going along as if Jesus's words really hadn't taken root. How frustrating is it to you when you try to explain something to somebody and they're not listening? You're, you're speaking clearly and you're talking to them and they're checked out. Like you understand that they're not getting at all what you are talking about. It goes in one ear and out the other. Or they think you said the opposite of what you actually said. Has that ever happened to you? Whereas you hear somebody repeating back to you what you said three days ago and they're repeating the opposite of what you said. No, let me correct you. Listen, here's what I said. Well, that's what the angels are doing now with these women. Don't you remember what Jesus said? Have you forgotten? Why don't you recall? He said this. And the angels repeat the words of Jesus back to these women. And when they do, they get it. They understand, oh, yes, yes, that is what Jesus said. And they rush back to the remaining 11 apostles and they tell them what happened. We get a list there of the faithful women who were, uh, who were communicating these incredible events um, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James with the other women with them. Um, and again, women were not thought to have been reliable witnesses and that's exactly how the apostles treat them. The apostles treat them as if they're not reliable. In verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. 
They thought the women were being hysterical. They thought they were making things up. Again, this is not something that everybody just says, oh yeah, that's, we live in a magical world and things like this happen all the time. No, this is, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. But these women have the opportunity and the blessing to be the first heralds of the resurrection of Jesus. Just as, uh, just as Mary and Elizabeth rejoice first at the virgin birth at the beginning of the gospel. Now women are the first to believe the resurrection of Jesus. So while women were discredited and disregarded in the culture, it's in the church that they're going to be elevated and respected and and valued, while Peter is still uh, full of incredulity along with the other apostles. Jesus has more business with Peter later. But they don't believe. And here's the thing about unbelief. Refusing to believe God's word or refusing to believe a specific event in God's word, whether it's the creation or the flood or the virgin birth or the resurrection, refusing to believe in something like that doesn't then mean that you believe in nothing. You are never liberated from religion. You are, you are never liberated from theology. You all have a religion. Everybody does. Everybody has a religion. You have a theology. You have a set of beliefs about God. Disbelief in the gospel doesn't mean that you believe in nothing. It means that you believe in something else more strongly than the gospel. It means there's something else you're holding on to tighter than the gospel. In the unbelief we see here, it's not that they believe in nothing. It's just that they believe in other things more than they believe in what Jesus said. They believe in other things more than in the possibility of the resurrection. They believe that the natural order cannot be violated. They believe when you're dead, you're dead, and nothing can change that. They believe that Jesus couldn't accomplish what he said he was going to do. So, so don't ever fool yourself into thinking that you can just shed this thing called religion or you can shed this thing called faith. You are created as a worshiper, and you are going to worship something. You will. You're going to believe in something. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're going to worship something. You're going to believe in something. And the message of Easter, the message of the resurrection of Jesus challenges the assumption that death wins all the time. That's our default. We think death just wins. Death is death and death gets the last word. And because death is final, you just need to grab everything you can and do whatever you want to do between now and the time you die. And then when you die, you're done. The resurrection says, wait a minute, are you sure about that? Are you sure that death gets the last word? The resurrection says death is real, but death is not final. You don't have to die forever. In, in Jesus, death doesn't get the last word. Life does. And if you think this is so unbelievable, so incredible, that you can't take it seriously, I can't take the bodily resurrection of Jesus seriously, step back just a minute. Do you expect that the answer to sin and death and the grave, do you expect that the answer to these things would be something you could cook up in your kitchen? Do you think the answer would be something you could put together in your workshop? And it'd be something that would just work normally according to the laws of science as we believe them. Something you could come up with on your own or something that we would just discover, something we would just find. Something that would, the solution to sin and death in the grave, do you think it would be something that would cut with the grain of everything that we know and would fit in our categories or would the solution to sin and death in the grave be something so far out of reality that you see all of your categories and all of your, your uh, presuppositions and all of your boxes blown away completely? Peter is processing all of this as he goes to the tomb. 
he, he's trying to put all this together and he stoops down and he sees the grave clothes lying by themselves and Peter departs marveling. You get the sense that he fully hasn't embraced what is happening. He doesn't go away rejoicing. He goes away scratching his head. But let's process this with Peter. Let's, let's think through this. Why is there so much perplexity, confusion, fear on this first Easter morning? The most amazing, remarkable, the most breathtaking, stupendous, phenomenal thing has just happened. Jesus has gone through the grave. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has defeated Satan. God, the Father, has overturned the guilty verdict that was laid against Jesus by the Sanhedrin, the priests, Pilate, Herod, the mob. Everybody said he's, he's out of bounds, he's worthless, he's a sinner, he's a rebel, he's a revolutionary. They all declared him guilty. And now God has vindicated Jesus. He's declared them guilty and his son righteous. And now because Jesus is alive, we have life. We don't have to fear death or darkness or the grave. And you certainly don't have anything to fear from Satan. Satan mustered all of his forces. He tried to put the son of God to death, but Satan failed. It didn't take, it didn't work. The grave couldn't hold Jesus because he is life with a capital L. How's the grave going to hold life? It can't. He broke it. He broke the grave and all this is true. And yet on the morning when this is first revealed, Jesus's closest friends are grieving instead of rejoicing. Why is that? Well, it's, I think it's pretty simple. They were confused because they forgot the words of Jesus. In the absence of the physical presence of Jesus, they lost the plot. We are used to not having Jesus physically present with us. We, we have his word, we have his spirit, we have the sacraments, we have the church. They were for the first time figuring out what it meant to follow Jesus with him not physically there. And they needed to be reminded of his words. They needed to be reminded of the story. They were confused because they lost their place in the story. Have you ever been reading a novel and you put a bookmark in a place and you put it down and it may be several weeks before you pick it back up again. You, you, pick, up, you pick it up again and you have no idea what's going on. It's like, I, I completely, I don't know what I'm, uh, you, you flip back and forth. You think, what, what, who, who's this? I don't remember this. What's this about? And you flip back a few chapters and you start to read again. You say, yeah, yeah I know that. I know that. Okay, it's all coming back together. Or if you pause a movie and you think I'm going to finish it and then a week goes by and you don't finish the movie and then you turn it back on again and you say, I, I, what, who is this? I don't know what's going on. I have to start over. You start all over. You've lost your place in the story. That's what's happened with these women and the disciples. They have to be reminded. Now, who are we? And what are, are we doing here? And what's happening now? We lose our place in the story when we forget what God has said. When, he, when we lose touch with the world that he has created and how he has operated in that world. When the scriptures are not in us as a part of us, they don't, they don't provide our framework and how we understand the world. If you get your framework for how you view the world from the news or bureaucrats or websites or Facebook memes, if, you, if that's how you're understanding how the world is put together and you ignore the scriptures and you, you forget the scriptures, you, you're going to find yourself believing and living in a very different world. You're going to be following a different story. You lose your place and you forget who you are. But then... Like the angels pull these women back to the scriptures. They pull them back to what Jesus says. We are pulled back and we find our place in the story by, remember, by remembering 
what Jesus said. And when they do see Jesus bodily, he's doing the same thing. He's calling them to remember what he told them before. Listen to what he says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he, he, he sees these uh, two, two people walking back and leaving Jerusalem. And he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes back to the beginning of the scripture. And he says, from the beginning forward, everything is pointed to my death and resurrection. And I told you this. I told you this is going to how it's going to be. He runs through it all again when he meets the rest of the men back in Jerusalem. If you're following along over in verse 36 of chapter 24 of Luke. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened. You see, they're still, he's there and they're still not putting it together. And they supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So, he, so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He goes back to the whole story all over again. You see now, he says, it's, it's always been about my death and my resurrection, where death and darkness and the grave don't get the last word. Up to this point, what must have they been thinking? What, what were they thinking all this time? You, you, you wonder if this whole time they just had this abstract theological proposition about resurrection in their minds, that, that it really didn't mean anything to their lives or to the world. You get a little sense of this at, at the grave of Lazarus. When, when Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again, what does she say? Remember, she says, yeah, I know the last day, everyone's going to be resurrected. I know that's going to happen. Uh, she knew God's promise that he was going to bring life out of death and that he would conquer the grave. They believed in the promise of eternal life but they couldn't imagine that what God had promised to do at the end of history, he would also begin to do in the middle of history and that it would have relevance now to them, that it was near to them. It wasn't, it wasn't personal for Martha. There was no sense in which this meant anything for her life right now or for her brother. It was all very theoretical in a, in a sense, just fitting in this category of far off religion that doesn't, that doesn't affect me. It, it, it's something I can set aside. It doesn't have any impact on real life. But then you get to see the light bulbs come on and they find their place in the story. When Jesus, when Jesus goes back through the story, then they say, oh yeah, yeah, this is the real world. This is the world where Jesus wins and life wins and light defeats the darkness and death and the grave are defeated and I'm part of it. This transforms me in my life and my whole perspective. Do you understand what the resurrection of Jesus has done to the world? Do you understand why it, 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 is, it is, has changed every? If we live in the kind of world where a man has given his life for the life of the world, has gone down into the grave, and then has come out of the grave bodily to live and then to ascend to the right hand of the Father, that's the universe we live in. That's the world we live in. And if that is true, that changes everything. 
There's nothing the same. There's nothing that, that, that works the way it did before that, that everything doesn't end in death, but there's light and life and a future. And I don't know about you, but I have to admit that there are times where I, I lose my place. If I listen to about 10 minutes of talk radio, or I scroll Twitter, uh, or I, I start to slip into despair and confusion, I, I begin to get swallowed up by doom, I lose where I am in the story. I forget what God's doing. I forget that I live in the world where the resurrection happened. I, I start to live in this imaginary world where everything is death and gloom. And I have to quickly correct and remember God's promises and, and remember the reality of the resurrection, the truth of the ascension and the victory of the gospel. Whatever your source of doom is, wherever you go to get your daily dose of outrage, wherever you go to get your, your daily dose of despair, you are likely to be tempted to forget that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. You're going to forget that because they're not going to tell you that. They're not going to remind you of that. Nowhere that you go, nobody's going to tell you that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Nobody's going to remind you of that. And without that, by just, just looking at the world without that, that leaves you depressed and confused and angry. You lose the plot. You need to pick the book back up and keep reading. Figure out where you are in the story. Hear the words of Jesus. And remember, oh yeah, this is the world where the resurrection happened. That's the reality we're living in. Is it any mystery why a world that has rejected the resurrection, has rejected that truth, is it any mystery that that world is consumed by fear? Is it any wonder that a society living in a world where Jesus did not come bodily out of the grave, where, where, a world where death always gets the last word, where Jesus doesn't reign, is it any mystery that they're living lives overcome by terror and they're so easily panicked? Is that a mystery to you? It's not, it's not really a mystery, is it? What would your mental state be? What would your outlook on life be if you didn't believe and trust in the resurrection of Jesus? I can tell you, I would be non-functional. I would, I would be a basket case. On this morning, these men and these women stare into an empty tomb and they're fearfully confused at this strange thing that God is doing in the world. So you and I observe a world that God is right now shaking and shifting and we ask, what is he doing? What is happening? What is going on? We observe this world that, that God is shaking up and as dreadful and as shocking and as distressing as the places our minds go when we think about what the future holds, the gospel reminds us that Jesus in the cross has already been through that and much worse. That the Jesus who overcame death and who defeated darkness and who defeated the grave has already conquered all the death and all the darkness that we will ever face. If you are united to Jesus by faith, his deliverance from death is your deliverance. And we know that we are all raised up with him in his resurrection, which means you can go bodily and boldly and bravely and courageously into all the dark places. You can go right up to the brink of the grave to take the fight to Satan and his minions, knowing that Jesus brings life and resurrection out of all the dark and dead places and that Jesus is defeating all the dark and dead things. Death in the grave doesn't hold this power over us. It's, we're loosed from the bondage to the fear of death. So have no fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Don't wallow in doom. 
Don't fear like these women and these apostles did at first. Why? Why? What What do you fear? What darkness is ahead of you that you're about to head into and it's got you really, really scared? You don't think you're going to be able to make it out the other side. What, what's out there that has you consumed with terror? I can tell you, Jesus has already been through it and worse. Jesus has gone on ahead of you through abandonment and betrayal and loss and poverty. Jesus has gone through shame and grief and torment. Jesus has gone through embarrassment. He's gone through loneliness. He's gone through death itself. Jesus went through it all ahead of you. He conquered all of it. He picked up all the trophies and he came out the other side rejoicing. So now you aren't alone. You aren't by yourself. You share in his suffering so that you can share in his life, so that you can share in the riches of his inheritance. So Don't fear, put away your sins, repent, confess your sins, put them away and don't forget what he's told you. Don't lose your place in the story. Don't lose the plot. You are living in the world where Jesus has come out of a grave. That's the world you live in. That's reality. That's not fantasy world. People who disbelieve that are living in fantasy world. You're living in the real world. Follow this Jesus and rejoice in your living savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel and for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray that you would strengthen us with this and by your spirit as you guide us all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.